Support for this episode comes from Promat. As the world's leading passive fire protection solution provider, Promat and its legendary R&D programs are widely recognized and even accepted as industry benchmarks. Indeed, six decades of accumulated, published and always available test data are just a few of the factors behind Promat's recognition as a global leader in fire science technologies and the protection of tunnel infrastructure. Offering both board and sprayed applied fix and forget solutions that have been installed in over 300 tunnels globally. For more information about their range of products and services, including in-house QRA, CBA and FEM capabilities, please visit them at www.promat-tunnel.com. High in the Alps, straddling the French and Italian border, sits the Mont Blanc Tunnel. The tunnel links the beautiful French ski town of Chamonix with the Italian alpine gen of Cormier on the south side of the 4,800 metre Mont Blanc peak. On the morning of the 24th of March 1999, Belgian truck driver Gilbert de Grave entered the tunnel from the French side carrying a full load of flour and margarine. The single tube tunnel had traffic flowing in both directions. Several kilometres into the 11.5 kilometre tunnel, drivers coming in the opposite direction began flashing their lights at Gilbert and the glance in his mirror showed smoke coming out from under his cabin. This was not yet a crisis. In the 34 years since the tunnel had opened, there had been 16 truck fires. All of which had been successfully extinguished by the driver of the vehicle. At 10.53 local time, Gilbert de Grave stopped his truck in the middle of the tunnel and attempted to fight the fire. But he was forced back by the flames from his cabin and had to flee. At 10.55, the tunnel employees triggered the fire alarm and stopped any further traffic from entering. At this point, there were at least 10 cars and vans and 18 heavy goods vehicles in the tunnel that had entered from the French side. A few vehicles from the Italian side passed the abandoned Volvo truck without stopping. Some of the cars on the French side managed to turn around in the narrow two-lane tunnel to retreat back to France. But negotiating the road in the dense smoke that had rapidly filled the tunnel quickly made this impossible. The larger trucks did not have space to turn around, and reversing was not an option. Most of the drivers sat in their cars, their windows rolled up and waited for rescue. Within minutes, two fire trucks from Chamonix responded to the unfolding disaster. The ventilation system in the tunnel drove toxic smoke back down the tunnel faster than anyone could escape. These fumes quickly filled the tunnel and caused vehicle engines to stall because of lack of oxygen. This included fire engines which, once affected, had to be abandoned by the firefighters. Many drivers near the blaze who attempted to leave their cars and seek refuge points were quickly overcome. The fire had melted the wiring and plunged the tunnel into darkness. In the smoke and with abandoned and wrecked vehicles blocking their path, the fire engines were unable to proceed. The fire crews instead abandoned their vehicles and took refuge in two of the emergency safe havens which were set in the tunnel walls at 600 metre intervals. As they huddled behind the fire doors, they could hear burning fuel roll down the road surface, causing tyres and fuel tanks to explode. They were rescued five hours later by a third crew that responded and reached them via a ventilation duct. Of the 15 firefighters that had been trapped, 14 were in serious condition and one, their commanding officer, died in the hospital. Some victims escaped to safe havens. The original fire doors on the safe havens were rated to survive for just two hours. 
the fire burned for 53 hours. And reached temperatures of 1,000 degrees Celsius. Mainly because of the margarine load in the trailer. Weather conditions at the time meant that airflow through the tunnel was from the Italian side to the French side. Sending smoke from the fire over the escaping tunnel users. Authorities compounded the effect by directing ventilation fans to push further fresh air from the Italian side. Feeding the fire and forcing poisonous black smoke through the length of the tunnel. There were 27 deaths in vehicles and 10 more died trying to escape on foot. All the deceased were ultimately reduced to bones and ash. Of the initial 50 people trapped by the fire, only 12 survived. It was more than five days before the tunnel cooled sufficiently to begin repairs. Some 20 years later, our knowledge of tunnel fires, our preparedness, and our technology has moved on, and now the rules are moving on too. Welcome to the Tunneling Podcast. I'm John Young. And I'm Rian Owen. In this, our first episode, we're going to look at the ever-present danger of fires and tunnels, especially road tunnels. How tunnel designers can prepare for and mitigate that danger. And how, after decades of debate, the industry is finding agreement on the way forward. Technology, priorities, and even the rules on building road tunnels are all coming together. The, the way the, the transport industry is going at the moment, we are building more tunnels and we're building longer tunnels and we're putting more traffic through those tunnels. Given that no protection system or no prevention system is perfect, fires are inevitable. Uh, and as, as the amount of traffic going through tunnels increases, inevitably the number of fires in tunnels is going to increase. It's, just, it's a matter of statistics. I think there's... Incidents in tunnels are probably more common than we realise, and the fire brigade do respond to vehicle fires probably more frequently than than, than, we're, than we know because of the nature of how statistics are recorded. We are building more tunnels. We're building longer tunnels. Fire is inevitable, unstoppable, and potentially uncontrollable. That is, unless we are ready for it, as designers, as builders, as owners and operators. My name is Ricky Carville. I'm Senior Lecturer in Fire Dynamics at the University of Edinburgh and co-editor of the Handbook of Tunnel Fire Safety. Ricky literally wrote the book on tunnel fire safety and can now be found roaming the labs and setting fire to things in the name of science at the University of Edinburgh's School of Engineering. A, a fire is always a product of its environment. Uh, unfortunately, the Mont Blanc uh, tunnel is... is uh, uh, a small tunnel with one carriageway in, in each direction, um, just a two-lane tunnel, um, and most of the, the vehicles in it at the time were trucks, which obviously can't do three-point turns or anything in a small tunnel. So there was a queue of vehicles formed behind the initial vehicle, um, stretching back in the direction of France. I believe we're uh, about six kilometres into the tunnel or something at this point. So a long way from the portal uh, and it took some time for the portal to be closed so there was a, a significant number of vehicles that formed a queue. Some trucks uh, and vehicles coming from the, the Italian side uh, safely passed by uh, but actually um, uh, eventually once the, there was a significant amount of smoke in the tunnel some vehicles stopped uh, and a queue formed stretching back towards Italy. And over the course of the incident, the, the fire actually spread to every single vehicle uh, in the queue towards France. And um, because we have no witnesses, we, we've got no idea of the timeline, but the, the fire spread 
to every single vehicle and consumed every single one of them uh, as the, the incident progressed. Perhaps more uh, surprisingly, uh, and certainly from a fire dynamics point of view more impressively, um, the fire also spread to the, the queue of, of traffic that had been coming from the, the Italian side. Um, this may not sound too surprising, but there was actually 290 metres of, of empty tunnel uh, between the, the initial incident vehicle uh, and the first stopped vehicle on the Italian side. Uh, and yet, at some stage uh, in the fire development, and we don't exactly know uh, how that happened or when that happened, uh, the fire spread across that 290 metres of, of empty tunnel. The fire in the Mont Blanc tunnel, which started as a single HGV, not only engulfed all of the vehicles on the French side of the fire, but managed to travel up the tunnel, crossing 290 metres of empty space and ignite the trucks queuing on the Italian side. The reasons for the spread across such a, a large uh, distance are probably because the temperatures got very high. A, a fire is always a product of its environment. Um, there is the, the object or the fuel that is burning, um, there is the air coming in, but the, the surroundings influence the burning uh, of the fire very much. If you uh, can imagine a fire burning in a hearth, in a fireplace, what it needs to do is it actually needs to heat up its surroundings and then once it's done that it, it burns very nicely. If you take the same, you know, a pile of coal and you, you burn it in an open space, it doesn't burn so well. And so what we find with the tunnel is the tunnel provides uh, an environment that retains heat fairly effectively and, and that uh, is going to cause the, the fire to burn hotter and it's going to cause the, the temperatures to rise uh, and it also means that uh, we get to the situation where if 290 metres of tunnel are all at elevated temperature, you know, hundreds and hundreds of degrees uh, centigrade, uh, then it's very easy for a, a firebrand. A small piece of flaming debris. Or something to, to jump that distance uh, and ignite the, the vehicles that are some distance away. Major tunnel fire events are uncommon. But single vehicle tunnel fires happen with much greater frequency. Understanding how a fire starts and how it develops is the first step to developing a fire protection system for any tunnel. The most at risk tunnels are road tunnels and the rules for how we prepare for fire are set out in BD78, Designed for Road Tunnels, published in August 1999, not long after the Mont Blanc fire. Understanding how to protect life and the asset, the tunnel, in the event of a fire begins with understanding how fire starts. There's lots of potential ignition scenarios in tunnels. It's perhaps easy to talk about the Mont Blanc tunnel as an example of what can cause a tunnel fire. I've driven through the Mont Blanc tunnel from France towards Italy. One of the most striking things about it is that you actually have to climb a very steep road from the French side um, to reach the portal to go in. My little car made its way up fine, but if you've got, if you're carrying a, a, a trailer load with of lots of heavy goods of some variety, your engine has to do an awful lot of work to get that up the hill. Um, and certainly in Mont Blanc, that's the, the main contributing factor to all the incidents that have happened in there with trucks has been engines overheating because they've they've climbed up um, a very steep fairly long slope and their engines are simply you know at, at breaking point when they get there um, and uh, if there's any flaws in the engine the, the engine overheats uh, and that can lead to a fire the other 
uh, instance of, of ignition that, that happens quite often uh, with heavy goods vehicle uh, is at the opposite extreme, uh, when a heavy goods vehicle carrying a lot of weight is going down a steep hill, it uses its brakes a lot. Um, and obviously the way brakes work in a heavy goods vehicle is they turn uh, kinetic energy into heat. Uh, and if that heat builds up to an excessive level, uh, if there's any kind of you know, grease with debris in it near the near the wheels, near the bearings, uh, that can ignite, um, and very soon you've got uh, something on fire. For passenger cars, leaving aside the obvious uh, collision cases, you have you have a collision between two vehicles, fuel tank ruptured, that that can lead to a fire. The most common cause uh, of ignition for a car fire is uh, failures of the electrics in some way. The the way the the transport industry is going at the moment, we are building more tunnels and we're building longer tunnels and we're putting more traffic through those tunnels given that no protection system or no prevention system is perfect fires are inevitable uh, and as as the amount of traffic going through tunnels increases inevitably the number of fires in tunnels is going to increase it's just it's a matter of statistics having a fire ignite in a tunnel is unstoppable. It's going to happen. It is a factor of road tunnel operation we must concede is inevitable. Unavoidable. But preventing a single fire becoming a catastrophe. Now that's something we can do something about. We must contain that fire. We must stop it. Stop it spreading to a second vehicle, especially a heavy goods vehicle. Because from there it will leap to a third. And a fourth. And will quickly engulf every car. And truck. And everybody in that tunnel for what you might call catastrophic fires in road tunnels. Every single one of them has involved a heavy goods vehicle as either the originating fire source or a car crashes into a heavy goods vehicle and starts a fire that way. You know, So if a fire does not spread to a heavy goods vehicle in its initial stages, it doesn't become a catastrophic fire. So how do we stop a fire in a tunnel? The the best way of dealing with a, a tunnel fire is not to have the fire in the tunnel in the first place. There, there was an incident of a, a, a bus, a coach uh, fire in France a few years ago where the driver realised that his vehicle was on fire but kept driving until he was out of the tunnel. Just drove right through. And then slammed on the brakes. Uh, and he was widely praised for that because, you know, he'd thought through the scenario of the, these people will be safer outside the tunnel than inside the tunnel. So if you if there's anything you can do to get the fire outside the tunnel, uh, then then do it. Um, for heavy goods vehicles, though, rarely that's that's rarely a possibility because if you're if it's if your vehicle's on fire because the engine or the brakes have overheated, you can't drive very far. So how about keeping trucks out of tunnels in the first place, or at least those carrying dangerous loads? Some tunnels will have uh, a convoy system where you wait to be taken through in convoy uh, while, while the tunnel is closed to other traffic. Some tunnel operators take the view that um, it's less hazardous to allow the vehicles to pass through the tunnel than it is to be above surface going through a built up area where it's probably more at risk of being involved in a collision and, and being damaged. Um, and so, you know, it's less of a risk to pass through the tunnel than it actually is uh, to be stuck in a traffic jam or, you know, on roads that are not, not perhaps not suitable for hazardous goods. Hello, I'm Dave Harold. I'm a fire safety consultant for London Bridge Associates. 
Um, I have ex experienced in road tunnels from a tunnel safety officer perspective and the tunnels under construction. We provide fire safety advice to uh, the contractors, to clients, and support them developing emergency plans and fire risk assessments. So we have a fire event in our tunnel. As an operator, what is my first action? The fire may have started, but the first action the tunnel needs to perform, or the tunnel operator, is detection. In road tunnels, uh, typical systems can be uh, linear heat detection, could be radar, a radar system to detect if uh, the movement of people or vehicles in the tunnel, a VADE system which picks up um, if traffic stops, or if there's something happens in the tunnel that's out of the ordinary, it will, it will raise an alarm. A thermal image camera will see how hot you know, the brakes are, the engine compartment is, but, but people, and if people are moving, detecting where people are and if they're on foot, whereabouts in the tunnel they are, the location of the fire would be quite prominent on, on a thermal image camera. So identifying a fire in a tunnel can be done through a sophisticated mix of technologies, supplementing the traditional CCTV monitoring. Linear heat, which monitors the temperature along the length of the tunnel. Thermal imaging, which can see using the body temperature of the people and objects in the tunnel. And radar. Under EU legislation brought in in 2014, tunnels of half a kilometre long must have incident and fire detection monitoring and for tunnels of more than three kilometres, video systems are mandatory. So the, um, yeah, the warning systems can, can pick up if the tunnel is operating in an unusual condition. Um, instead of vehicles moving through or if you've got uh, pedestrians in a tunnel um, have left their vehicle because it's broken down or it's caught fire, uh, that, can, that can alert. Operators in the control room are often responsible for a large network and not just the tunnel. So the accuracy of the automatic detection system is critical in getting early notice of an incident and being able to start tackling it. So how busy that control room is, how many other things they have to do, if they've got a large network to monitor, may cause a problem. If you're distracted with dealing with an incident somewhere on the network, the road network that that control room is monitoring, and something kicks off in a tunnel, and it's not immediately picked up by your your incident identification system, you know, would be reliant on an emergency call being made by a member of the public, and you don't want to be delayed. That emergency call would be routed through the 999 system and to the local fire service. It may take some time for the operator to be told of the fire through this route. And the driver calling in might not even be sure of which tunnel they're in. Those moments when a fire first develops are so critical. The lives of the tunnel occupants. Their lives will be decided by the actions of the operator, other drivers and themselves. Most importantly themselves. Their own actions. One of the things that we saw in the Mont Blanc tunnel fire was that the the majority of people who died in that incident uh, died without ever leaving their vehicles. Um, they there have been various studies uh, looking at this uh, subsequently, um, and and it it probably just is a matter of people's perception of of where is safe and where is dangerous. You probably find your own car uh, as a relatively safe space. Uh, you certainly would find a tunnel environment where there's the smoke uh, and possibly vehicles moving that you can't see as a, a dangerous place. And it will take a long time uh, for you to, to overcome your own, your own instincts to try and stay in the safe space 
uh, to move into uh, what you perceive as a dangerous space. As smoke darkens the tunnel and the smell of smoke reaches you, it seems absolutely natural to wind up your windows, close the air vents and glance in the mirror looking for the blue lights of the emergency response. That is certainly a typical male reaction. In a recreation of the Austrian Tuern tunnel fire, which killed 12 people just two months after the Mont Blanc fire, the men, without otherwise being instructed, remained in their car and waited for rescue. The women were more likely to venture out and find the emergency phone or safe passage. There's been a lot of research in uh, recent years looking at making emergency evacuation points, uh, evacuation doors, more attractive uh, and ways of lighting them uh, and ways of colouring them and, and providing light seems to be the key, uh, providing a lot of illumination uh, around the emergency exit doors uh, to make them seem uh, attractive places and so faced with the, the prospect of sitting in your car, uh, remaining in the tunnel uh, or going through a very welcoming door, uh, the, the hope is that people will uh, tend to go through the very welcoming door uh, and reach a place of safety. Based on what we know on human behaviour and reaction to alarms, the voice um, PA system uh, have proven to be very effective in instructing the people who may be in the tunnel of what action to take. There seems to be a common tendency these days for people to stop and want to look, film uh, and observe. They don't realise their perception of danger can be quite significantly different from the actual danger they're in. In a fire situation, we've got minutes to react and take the right, choose, make the right decision. But the way human behaviour is and has been shown is that there's a crowd dynamic, a crowd behaviour. You will follow what the crowd does. If one person's filming it and thinks it's safe to do so, others will follow suit. And so if you've got people outside the vehicles not choosing to evacuate in a fire situation, um, the voice systems can be very effective. All personnel, please evacuate. All personnel, please evacuate. All personnel, please evacuate. So to All recap, strategy evacuate. one for surviving a tunnel fire is don't have a tunnel fire. Keep on driving. Have your fire somewhere else. Strategy two is see the fire and run the other way. Get people to the exits and get them out. Next is about trying to regain control and give those people more time to escape and the first responders more time to get on the scene and fight that fire. And let's not forget, at this stage, all the onus is on the tunnel designer to have designed a tunnel that gives the occupants the best chance of survival through its early detection and warning systems, its signage and escape routes. And now how well equipped the tunnel is to slow the fire's progress and limit the effects of the fire on the occupants. Use the ventilation system to try and protect people from the effects uh, of fire and smoke. Perfect. In the first moments of the tunnel fire, smoke is the most difficult hazard for tunnel occupants. It deters them from leaving their vehicle. It reduces visibility and ultimately kills. The genius of this response is that for road tunnels, at least the ventilation system is already there. It is needed in the day-to-day -day operation of the tunnel to remove pollutants generated by the cars and trucks passing through the tunnel. Most commonly uh, in tunnels, what that means we do is we blow the smoke away. And so uh, certainly in tunnels with a longitudinal ventilation system, uh, a series of jet fans usually will drive the, the smoke and, and hot gases from the fire in one direction, uh, not the other direction, so that people have a good chance of, of escaping uh, into the wind, essentially, 
uh, and uh, the the incoming inblowing air um, provides fresh air, provides a, a cool environment, a safe environment. Unfortunately, what we've noticed is when you do that, of course, you're providing oxygen for the fire. So the fire becomes um, not exactly unlimited in size, but the fire gets the opportunity to grow very, very large in size. So as I say, the, the a fire is very much a product of its environment, and that's not just the 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 surrounding structure of the tunnel, which is going to retain heat. Uh, it's also very much a product of the the ventilation environment it lives in. Um, fire requires oxygen to come from somewhere. It requires a flow of oxygen. So if you have a small flow towards the the fire then the fire will quickly consume all the available oxygen and will not be able to burn more intensely than that. Uh, if you have a larger flow towards the uh, towards the fire, uh, the fire can then grow to a, a larger limit. In tunnel fires, we, we tend to talk about fires in terms of megawatts. That's the, the, the energy, the heat release rate of the fire typically is expressed in megawatts, which uh, is a, a ridiculously large uh, amount of energy and, and probably too hard for most people, including people that throw the phrase around with uh, uh, quite freely to, to really understand um, how much energy one megawatt is. Um, but if we're talking of a truck fire in a tunnel, um, we've seen instances uh, in experiments where with a reasonable amount of ventilation, you can get heat release rates up to about 200 megawatts. If you constrict the ventilation, if you restrict the, the ventilation flow, uh, then the fire becomes has to be smaller than that. Uh, and we've seen similar fuel loads that could potentially have been 200 megawatts actually only being 50 or 60 megawatts. I say only 50 or 60 megawatts. 50 or 60 megawatts uh, is still a ridiculously large fire. Okay, so to understand this, we want to ramp up ventilation over the heads of the escaping tunnel occupants and in the direction of the fire. So we have lovely, fresh, breathable air. And so we can see where we're going. I indeed. But at the same time, we want to restrict the airflow, the ventilation, so that we can starve the fire of the oxygen it needs to grow. That's right. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The solution is, in the first instance, you use the ventilation to help people flee the tunnel. And then, when the tunnel is clear, you may attempt to restrict airflow to help reduce the size of the fire. At Mont Blanc, they appear to have in fact made the situation worse by having the ventilation system direct air from the Italian side to the stuck cars on the French side. Ventilation control has to be well rehearsed. And its use in the past has been even worse than the situation at Mont Blanc. The fire in the uh, subway through the metro system in Azerbaijan in 1995, where midway through the incident, they changed the direction of airflow and blew smoke towards a lot of escaping people. That, I mean, resulted in about 200 fatalities. There was fire on a subway train and not near either of the ends, so there were people on both sides of the fire. People began evacuating, safely got off the train uh, and were making their way uh, along the tunnels towards uh, the, the nearby stations. Um, I believe there was about a kilometre between the two stations. Operators in the control centre, for whatever reason, decided midway through the evacuation to switch on the ventilation systems, which resulted in the, the smoke being blown from the station that was closest to the train towards the more distant station. Uh, but unfortunately, 
that coincided with there were more people travelling towards the more distant station uh, and so the smoke ended up being uh, blown towards the, the greater number uh, of escaping. As I recall, um, it was of the order of 220 people died in the tunnel um, and something that only 70 people survived of the ones that were travelling uh, towards the, the more distant station. Ventilation systems have the ability then to create a safer environment for escape, but used incorrectly could actually make the situation much, much worse. There is a second consideration for the use of ventilation systems in fire vents too. By feeding the fire a fresh supply of air, the fire can burn more intensely and generate more heat. The threat to the tunnel structure then becomes much greater. The fire gets the opportunity to grow very, very large in size, uh, release a lot of energy into the tunnel. Um, now, it may be that because that's all directed in one direction, downstream of the fire, um, that this is good from a life safety point of view. From the, the point of view of the structure, however, uh, we're releasing a huge amount of heat in a very localised space. And that means a huge amount of heat is transferred into the structure. The structure is either made of concrete or steel or some combination of the two. These materials, when they heat up, will uh, inevitably begin to deform, will begin to uh, lose their strength, uh, and, and you could get a localized or, or generalized you know, global collapse, uh, which is, of course, a very bad thing. Um, the tunnel is there basically to keep something away from from the vehicle space that something could be a river it could be a mountain uh, it could be uh, it could be a whole lot of earth um, and once the, the the structure loses its integrity then the earth or the river or whatever can can come in uh, and can be a big problem wow an intense fire can lead to a catastrophic collapse of the structure Images that circulated after the 2008 Channel Tunnel Fire revealed the true extent of damage possible in tunnel fire. In the 1996 and 2008 fire incidents, there were portions of the, of the lining that were completely gone. All the concrete was gone. All that was left was rebar and soil behind it. There are parts of the Channel Tunnel that they know they can't afford to have that happen in. Um, and so the train carries on going. And actually that's in the... The 2008 fire actually happened in one of those keep driving zones. So they kept driving until they were out of it and then stopped the train. But don't panic. There is more in the arsenal than just ventilation. Ventilation can be great if used correctly. But there are other options to be aware of too. Fixed firefighting systems or fire suppression systems. I have to say I'm slightly frustrated by the language we use. Most common designation uh, for them is fixed firefighting systems, uh, which is odd because these systems, uh, while they do influence fire, they do control fire, they may contain fire, uh, they will protect against the effects of fire. Uh, most of the time they've not been demonstrated to be able to extinguish fires, uh, which is the ultimate aim of firefighting. Um, and so I think using the phrase firefighting system uh, is a bit of a misnomer. And, and what we've found with water spray systems in tunnels is that they can control the fire, they can contain the fire, uh, they can mitigate the effects of the fire, uh, but the fire may still continue to grow. 
I tend to prefer uh, the uh, the word mitigation uh, or the word protection uh, or the word control. Passengers fleeing the Mont Blanc fire had no assistance from a fire mitigation system. Prior to the, the Mont Blanc tunnel fire, there were very, very few examples of fixed water spray suppression systems in tunnels. The industry was against them for, for a number of reasons, most of which are now discredited. But it took the, the events of the Mont Blanc fire, the Tower and Tunnel fire, the St. Gotthard Tunnel fire, to cause the industry to, to rethink uh, their attitudes towards what have become known as fixed firefighting systems uh, in tunnels. Um, and uh, I would say in the decades immediately following the, the spate of tunnel fires at the turn of the century, um, we saw a, a, a huge shift uh, in the industry from a sort of grudging acceptance to now uh, almost a default position to we will consider putting in um, some form of water spray system. Uh, for all new build tunnels. It's, it's, we're almost at that stage now. I, I began my career in, uh, in tunnel fire, the tunnel fire world uh, in, in 1998. Uh, and one of the things that struck me very early on my, my career was a conference I was at where there was a debate uh, about the use of, of water spray systems, deluge systems in this uh, instance in tunnels for a, a freight railway that, that runs through the Netherlands. Um, and it had just been built in the late 90s and they had installed a deluge system. And there were some very heated opinions uh, expressed at the conference, uh, including one memorable instance of someone saying that activating a deluge system on a freight train in a tunnel would, quote, kill the driver, unquote. That was actually a, a dominant view in the industry in the, in the late 90s. Um, the, the reasons given uh, were that when you put uh, water on a large fire, uh, you create a lot of steam, uh, you destroy visibility, um, uh, and so you're creating a situation where people cannot see to, to evacuate uh, and you're creating uh, an environment that's that's untenable uh, due to very high temperatures, uh, steam uh, potentially scalding uh, or, or, or leading to fatalities. BD78, the Design for Road Tunnels Code, published in 1999, says Suppression is not considered suitable in traffic tunnels due to causing the smoke layer to drop. This was the prevailing view at the time and is still the official line right now, 20 years later. And over the, the, the decade that followed that, I, I've been part of the conversation on the use of water spray systems in tunnels. I, I certainly, to begin with, was something of a sceptic uh, as to their utility uh, and their value. Uh, that, I have to say, changed when I, I attended a conference in 2011 in the north of Spain as part of the, the Solit project, the Solit 2 project, I think it was at the time. That's the Safety of Life in Tunnels project. They did some demonstration tests for sceptics like myself, where I got to stand in a tunnel beside uh, a, a large fire um, surrounded by water mist. And one of the things 
uh, I do as part of my day job uh, is I set fire to things uh, in the lab and I, I'm a, never anything on the scale of a, a vehicle, but uh, I'm quite used to the amount of energy you feel you feel the radiation coming from fairly small fires. I have burned a number of Christmas trees in the lab in the name of science, obviously, uh, and know exactly what it feels like when I have a fire that's about one megawatt in heat release um, a few meters away from me. I know what the radiation from that feels like. And it took the experience of me standing in a tunnel about five meters away from a fire that was many, many times larger than uh, a Christmas tree and realizing that the water spray, the water mist in this case, was blocking the radiant heat such that I could barely feel the heat coming from what I was told was a 20 megawatt fire. And at that point, I realized that the, the way we design systems actually, relying on numbers like 20 megawatts, was kind of flawed because if you've got a, a 20 megawatt fire but you block all the effects of that with water spray then practically you're dealing with a much smaller fire uh, and perhaps our, our design uh, needs to reflect that and I, that was something of an epiphany for me as I realized that yes the, the, the water spray was not suppressing that fire it remained a 20 megawatt fire but the effects of that fire were considerably mitigated, were considerably reduced uh, by the, the water mist. Um, uh, and at that point, I, I, uh, I put my hand up and said, yeah, okay, I was wrong with my opinions. And I am much more willing to embrace uh, water mist uh, as a, a fire protection system uh, as part of a, a well thought out fire strategy uh, for uh, vehicle tunnels. So Ricky was a skeptic and is now a supporter of fixed firefighting systems. Or fire mitigation systems, as we should be calling them. But that's not all. The design codes are changing too. A revised version of the BD78 codes, expected to be released any moment, states Early warning of a fire, early activation of fire suppression measures, or appropriate use of mechanical ventilation can all contribute to reducing the risk to escapees and win more time for evacuation to a safe location with fresh air. But it goes beyond that. It says a fixed firefighting system, such as a deluge or water mist system, shall be included where, one, it's been determined that an installed mechanical ventilation system alone is unable to maintain a tenable environment on emergency escape routes, allowing the safe evacuation of tunnel users. Or two, a cost-benefit analysis determines that the installation and maintenance of a fixed firefighting system over the planned tunnel operating life is favourable when balanced against costs associated with potential structural reinstatement works and extended tunnel unavailability. So in essence, the rules are changing to say that water mist or water droplet systems should be used where they're needed to save life, but also where the cost of losing the assets, even for a short period, such as in the case with the Channel Tunnel and, and uh, Mont Blanc, is greater than the cost of the system. This is a game changer. So we go ahead and install the system. What's next? Here's Dave again from LBA. If fire suppression has been installed in the tunnel, that can be triggered by the control room, operated by the control room. Once other detection systems have picked up, you've got a fire situation, it can be automatically operated right at the scene, immediately before and after, uh, where the fire is, which can contain, suppress and contain, but not generally extinguish 
the fire, although recent experiences from single vehicle fires have shown that its uh, fire suppression system can cope extremely well with almost extinguishing the fire. Once the alarm has been raised, the control the tunnel operator will call uh, the fire service as part of a pre-arranged uh, emergency plan uh, for, for the asset and the response can vary according to the location in the country. Probably in a, in a, uh, in a metropolitan area you, you could be looking from 6 to 10 minutes, 12 minutes response time. In a, in a rural area where the firefighters are, have other jobs and they're part-time and they'll carry an alerter, a pager, to uh, uh, warn them that there's a fire. They have to travel to the fire station, don their PPE, take the fire engine to the scene. Uh, you could be talking up to 20 minutes plus attendance times. Up to 20 minutes for the fire brigade to arrive. We've established already that survival is linked to what happens in the first minutes of a fire event. Our driver, sitting with his windows rolled up, looking in his mirror for the blue flashing lights, cannot wait for help. In fact, 20 minutes is just the arrival time for the fire brigade. They still need to set up. Once the fire service reach the scene, they need to prepare uh, equipment, set into the hydrant, um, run out hose, um, they have to establish where, the, get information about where the fire is. The Fire and Rescue Service is, is required under the Fire Services Act to, uh, there, there is a provision for uh, gaining risk information, visiting premises to establish what the risk is, gain information for firefighting and any pre-planning they need to do, 72D of the uh, Fire and Rescue Services Act. Um, so the fire service is generally familiar with the, the locations. Usually there's a premises information box on the outside of the tunnel, on the wall, near the portal, which has got a plan of the tunnel. may have controls uh, for the ventilation. There may be uh, inlets for the fire brigade to supplement the fire main to charge the, the fixed fire main that we may be running through the tunnel. But the fire brigade need to respond, attend, make a decision about do they take the fire engine in or not, whereabouts in the tunnel is the fire, how far in, um, is the ventilation providing a safe environment for them to take the fire engine close up to the fire. That can take time, so you, you, you could have your you know variable response time, six minutes to 20 minutes, and then there's the time for actually setting up, making your tactical decisions, carry out a dynamic risk assessment about how you're going to tackle the incident. So you, you could add you know 15 to 20 minutes, perhaps longer, on top of that attendance time um, before manual firefighting takes place. So it could be up to 40 minutes before the fire service can begin firefighting, if it is safe to do so. Self-rescue is clearly essential in a tunnel fire. Saving the occupants is just part of the job. Next is saving the asset. Tunnels are designed with fixed fire protection in place. So there will be passive fire protection installed to protect the structure. Certainly on newer tunnels, it's a, it's a consideration that's, that's taken in place. If it's a concrete tunnel, you know, how long will that concrete last for? You know, are, are you providing the fibres in the concrete that are going to prevent spalling and, and last for a lot longer than traditional, um, you know, sprayed concrete or concrete lining? But uh, there could be additional panels that are installed on the crown of the tunnel to protect uh, fire resistant panels installed to provide a, an increased level, enhanced level of protection uh, for the asset. 
So it's not just about uh, a suppression system being installed, but that would be reliant on uh, firefighting intervention, ultimately. The most widely adopted method of protecting tunnel linings against high-intensity fire scenarios has been to use a passive fire protection system. This is Paul Sparrow, head of tunnels at fire protection company Promat. Either a calcium silicate or cement-based board, a spray-applied vermiculite Portland cement-based product, or the addition of polypropylene fibres in the concrete mix. The principal benefits of passive fire protection systems are they do not require power, water or human intervention to operate. They will most likely last for the design life of the tunnel without the need for replacement or expensive maintenance regimes. While offering no support to saving life, a fire protection coating applied to the lining of the tunnel can help bridge the time between the fire starting and firefighting intervention. In our experience, the most commonly applied fire duration is 120 minutes, although we do receive requests and have previously tested systems for up to 360 minutes duration. Choosing how long the fire protection should last is something that should be considered by the designer. There are a number of factors to take on board. One example is how easy or difficult is it for the fire and rescue services to reach the scene of the fire. Tunnels can often be located in remote locations without a dedicated fire station nearby. The amount and type of combustible materials involved is also another influencing factor. Preparing a tunnel for a fire event should consider all of the potential scenarios and the acceptable outcomes. How do occupants escape? How much time can you buy them using ventilation, water deluge or water mist systems? How do you communicate with the occupants, the fire service and how do you entice people out of their cars? And what about saving the tunnel? Can you buy enough time with mitigation systems and passive protection for the fire service to extinguish a multi-vehicle fire? So one of the things we've seen over the past couple of decades in, in research is a lot of people uh, investigating the, the capabilities of water spray systems to contain, control, uh, sometimes extinguish fires. But what these tests have generally involved is these tests have generally involved large piles of wooden pallets uh, representing vehicles. Uh, so what I would actually say is what we've managed to demonstrate over the past two decades uh, is that water mist systems uh, can, with reasonable reliability, control and contain fires of wooden pallets in tunnels. Unfortunately, most of the vehicles that go through our tunnels are not made of wood. Research into tunnel fires, vehicle fires, is quite limited. Uh, and we've been restricted in the past to uh, burning crib fires, wooden pallets, not actually using vehicles, uh, and certainly in training scenarios for emergency services, you know, they might use cos cosmetic smoke, which doesn't provide the level of reality um, that a full vehicle fire will provide. And so the only time the fire service tend to get any familiarity or practice with those conditions is, is during a real, real uh, fire in a tunnel. In Australia, I'm aware they actually set fire to vehicles in tunnels. They do live burns as part of their uh, training and familiarisation for the emergency crews. But it does rely on a brave asset owner <laughs> having the courage to set, set, set a fire in their tunnel. 
With new rules and better understanding, tunnelers are starting to unite in their approach to fire safety and settle debates that have rumbled on for decades. But the tunnel environment is ever-changing and the risks of the tunnel change too. We've always traditionally been focused on petroleum or perhaps LPG, but diesel-powered vehicles. But of course for the future is, is, is alternative fueled vehicles, whether battery technology, hydrogen fuel cell technology, and then the risks that that, that presents. You know, would you deal with it in, in a different way? Would you have a different type of system to deal with that type of incident? The actual fire itself may present a completely different dynamic than a traditional uh, fossil fueled vehicle fire. A lithium battery fire, as we've seen from the, the anecdotal and, and videos and, and, and examples that have occurred around the world, can burn for some considerable time. Uh, the chemical reaction in the battery is ongoing and whilst you, it might take two hours to extinguish that, but it could continue to burn uh, as soon as that fuel cell is interrupted in any way, the chemical process can, can start again and, and can reignite. There is footage online showing lithium battery fire being extinguished and spontaneously reigniting. This is posing a problem not only for the fire service but also for recovery vehicles that are in some cases refusing to tow the burnt car for fear of it catching a light again. If we do move to LGVs that are alternative powered, you know, that will be a bigger fuel source, a bigger battery. Um, and, you know, you could have hydrogen tanks on the vehicles. Um, and then you've got that as an additional hazard that's presented uh, in, a, in the confines of a, uh, of a tunnel, of a road tunnel. What do you think the next innovations will be um, in, in tunnel fire firefighting? We've now got detection systems that can precisely identify where the fire is. It's, it's actually taken us a long time uh, in tunnels to get these systems that can precisely identify where the fire is. But if you know exactly where the fire is, the best way of fighting that fire is to get the water exactly there. Um, and that doesn't involve switching on a 50 metre length of fixed firefighting system, as we call it. Um, it would seem to be much better if you've got some sort of robotic system that can actually direct the water actually directly at the fire um, rather than just in the general vicinity of the fire. I mean, there's all, there's all sorts of practicalities of how you wire up the, 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 the firefighting robot to the water supply, uh, but assuming we can overcome those problems, then it's entirely imaginable that had such a system been there in Mont Blanc, it would have put out the fire before the fire spread. In my mind, that's the ultimate goal of um, suppression systems, water spray systems, whatever you want to call them, for tunnels. We can't stop the fire starting, but I think we need to move towards stopping the fire spreading. I do think the challenge facing the industry is, in, in terms of dealing with fires, is how to get the the right amount of water in the right form to wherever the fire is. The Tunnelling Podcast is a production of Reby Media in partnership with the British Tunnelling Society. This podcast is a community-funded project. We are reliant on the support of the industry to enable us to tell these stories. We are very grateful to Promap for their support. If you would like to become a supporter, please get in touch. 
The hosts are me, John Young. And me, Rian Owen. The show is produced by John Young with script supervision from Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound design is Ross McPherson and series supervision is from Martin Oak of the British Tunnel Society. And our executive producer and the original Firestarter is Rory Harris. <laughs>